This morning I want to talk to you about one of the foundation stones of Christian theology, but also one of the most debated topics that arise from our scriptures, unconditional election. I'm going to do something I normally hate to do now by looking at the dictionary definitions, but they help us to get started. So election, the choosing, and in this specific context, the choosing of people to enter into God's kingdom, and unconditional, without any condition, without any factor affecting it in any way. Well, there's no better place to start than the beginning. However, our first reading was from Exodus, so we'll have to settle for the next best thing this morning. However, we will start with God, and more specifically, his name. Just before our reading from Exodus, God has already spared the Israelites once, back in chapter 32. So Moses' response to God's anger at his people is astonishing in light of this. Not just, please God, spare our lives, but spare our lives, help us complete our journey. And no, I don't want an angel leading our way. We want you leading our way instead. This is most certainly not one of those moments in the Bible that we can use in our everyday lives. This is most certainly a once-off event. God's response is amazingly to concede, to say, okay, because of my promise to you and because of the favour I've already shown you, I will go before you on your journey. But he adds something else. And it's this extra that he adds that's Why I'm talking about God's name, first of all. God has many names in the Bible. So many that there's a book you can buy, which lists all of them, which I bought for my fiancée Doreen a little while back. They all have a way of showing a different part of his character. Adonai Yira, the Lord who will provide. Adonai Rafika, the Lord who heals you. El Nose, the God who forgives. Perhaps one of the most important names he gives himself, though, comes from Exodus 3, when talking to Moses from within that burning bush. When Moses asks, Who shall I say has sent me? God answers, I am who I am. I am who I am. In our reading from Exodus, we hear a similar pattern. I, dot, 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 who I, dot, dot, dot. So as well as agreeing to Moses' terms, God adds, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And it may have come out slightly different in the Good News version we heard, but this is the translation I've used for this one. Initially, it does just look like a statement, but it is God saying to Moses what his name is who he is and what he does. In Exodus 3, he reveals who he is. This extension in chapter 33 shows us what he does. And it also ultimately declares God's sovereign power and his sovereign freedom. No outside factors affect who he is or what he does. I am who I am, And I will be gracious to who I will be gracious. God's very name declares his sovereign power and his righteousness. 
So what does this sovereign power mean for me? Well, let's come back to our topic from earlier and for today, unconditional election. This idea that God chooses us based on nothing we have done, no merits or qualities or anything else. The idea of election is one that people see from two different angles. Firstly, that God chooses you and then you believe because of him. The other view is that you believe and it's because of your belief that God chooses you. So which one is it? Well, the argument all stems from our view of the chain of command and the chain of power. Do we really put God at the top or do we use him as an afterthought to choices we've already made? Here's a good one to help us to answer that question. Let's think of the story of Noah. God has made this beautiful earth for man. He's already messed up big time once and gotten himself thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Now his sin is worse than ever. He spends day and night reveling in his misdemeanours, all apart from one man, Noah. He's not perfect, but he stayed faithful to God. This is the part that we know so well, that God warns Noah before sending a flood. A flood that is so vast and so terrible that it wipes off everything off the face of the earth, all except those few creatures and humans who are safely stowed away on the ark with Noah. Our God kills countless men to satisfy his justice. What is our response to this? Wow, how could God have killed nearly everyone on the entire planet? Or, wow, how could God have saved even one of us sinners? The first answer puts man at the centre. The second answer puts God at the centre. I think I can say without argument that God is at the centre and should be for all Christians. The best example of this being the commandments. In Exodus, in the first table of the law, those first four commandments, they're all concerning putting God first. That was the most important thing. In the Gospels, Christ says that the most important command is to love God with all your heart, your mind, and all your soul. God comes first. But this putting man at the centre, or humanism as it's often called, is very real in our church today, and it's gaining weight and followers all the time. Just last month at the inauguration service for the new Methodist circuit of Canterbury and East Kent, I was left open-mouthed when a leader of another denomination of Christianity extended her blessing to our new deacon, along with her support for working together towards humanism. Humanism, not Christianity, not Christ-centred evangelism and mission, not God-fearing reverence and wonder, but humanism. Members of our faith are getting swept up with pressure and ideology from the world and are bowing to the world. 
rather than remembering that Christ, when under interrogation from Pilate, said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The message is clear. Do not be of this world. The message is also clear. God comes first. Many times in Romans, Paul asks himself questions. He never plucks these questions out of thin air, but they're always questions that people have asked him when he's been preaching or generally travelling. The questions we see are those questions that came up most often or seemed most pressing. So in the middle of our reading from Romans in verse 19, in response to reiterating what we heard in Exodus, God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, Paul asks himself, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, why does God blame us for sins if it is by his will that we're committing them? Some would argue that the only answer to this is that God doesn't unconditionally elect us, that rather he looks down the corridor of time and sees who will choose him, who will believe him and who won't, and therefore picks those who will believe and rejects those who won't. So that those who are sinners are rejected and take the blame for what they've done, and those who are righteous are accepted and take the glory for what they've done. However, this is falling straight back into that same trap that humans come first, that your belief is the most important thing, and then God tags along after. It's also blasphemous, because it implies that God is powerless, and that God is a liar, that he only picks those who have already believed because he has no power to change the will of man and that he tricks us into thinking he could elect those whom he wanted when in fact he's just retelling which that which was going to happen already like me telling you the football results before I watch match of the day and claiming to be all-knowing God is not powerless and he is certainly not a liar he is power and he is truth so if someone asked you this question, what would be your first response? Normally for us, including myself on many occasions, it is to try and defend God, to try and tiptoe around so that I don't offend the person. Or by doing that, what have I done? I've put man first again. And by the way, newsflash, God doesn't need to be defended and I should be a lot more scared about offending God than offending man. My being honest and truthful with the word that God has given me is not going to change whether God has already sovereignly elected this person or not. So Paul's answer to that question he poses himself is short and to the point. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Or to put it in more modern day language, who do you think you are to answer back to God? Maybe you think this might be ungodly, an ungodly thing to say to somebody else. 
But all I'll do is point you to Job. After always questioning of God's plan, God's reply is, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or this response from God could quite easily be summed up as, Who do you think you are? God chooses us, elects us, not because we believe, but because he chooses us. He is gracious to whom he will be gracious. He will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Our purpose is to give glory to God. It's up to him as to how that will manifest itself. As Paul said in our reading, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make it known that the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If I hold myself accountable for my salvation, then I take the glory. In perhaps my favourite chapter of the Bible, Romans 8, Paul states that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That first statement that all things work together for good has two conditions. First, that you are called by God. And second, that you love God. God comes first, you come second. Then we see that chain of logic that follows. If God foreknew you, he will predestine you. If he predestined you, he will call you. If he justifies you, he will glorify you. It's not down to us to glorify ourselves, for by our calling, we're already well on the way to being glorified by God. So God elects whom he will elect. So why is it unconditional? Well, first of all, because if it was conditional, we'd all be goners. If our salvation depended on what we did, then we wouldn't have a hope. In our reading from Romans, Paul goes on to mention some Old Testament scripture, some times when God showed that his word was final and that he decides who's saved and who isn't, irrelevant of whether people were Jews or Gentiles. So Paul's statement in Romans is a call to say, look, you've got the scriptures, our Old Testament, to show you that God is sovereign over this. Why have you not been able to see that? Well, God help us 
Because not only do we have the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament as well. It's often been said that the Old Testament is like a room full of furniture without the lights on. You've been told it's all there, but you doubt because you can't see it. And even when you do feel one bit, you wonder why it's where it is. Then the New Testament is like the same room, but with the light on. Christ the light has come and you can see everything before you. But all you can think is, why is that sofa there? Why is it not somewhere else? And that's not really where I would have put that. That's not very convenient for me. God helps us. We have the lights on, but we still stumble and question. And thank God for our elect, that our election isn't conditional. Because we've proved again and again that we cannot meet God's conditions, his law. So if our election isn't conditional, then how are we elected? How can we be justified? How can we be saved? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because this is the best bit. If you remember me earlier talking about the names of God, well, there's one name I haven't mentioned yet. The name which is above all names. The name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus. We sang about him just now with our hymn, I'm Special. It is often passed off as a children's hymn, basic and, and unworthy of an adult service. But I would argue that it's one of the greatest, simplest, clearest most concise pictures of grace, salvation and the gospel to have ever been written. I'm special because God has loved me for he gave the best thing that he had to save me. His own son, Jesus, crucified to take the blame for all the bad things I've done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for loving me so much. I know I don't deserve anything. Help me feel your love right now, to know deep in my heart that I'm your special friend. We deserve nothing, as we've clearly seen, and yet God, through Jesus, through his blood, has given us everything. I'm glad God's running a kingdom and not a business, because the business model would never have been accepted. Gain everything and pay nothing. Because the son of the owner has already paid it for you. So does that mean that because we're elected unconditionally, we have nothing to do? No work, no struggle. We can just be happy and know that we're saved. Well, my best answer to this question is simply to say that there's not a question that you'd ask if you knew what God had done for you. So what are we to do? In John's first letter, he writes... But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know I've talked about it before and I know I will talk about it again. Repentance and faith. 
That is what the followers of the way show as a result of their unconditional election, repentance and faith. So to think about the broader picture, if unconditional election, God choosing us based on nothing we have done, but simply because he shows mercy and will be given glory, what does this mean for all of us? Well, first of all, it means humility for those who are called. You're not here because God has chosen that you, or you are here because God has chosen that you would be. He took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart for love alone. You're not here because of anything you've done, but because of what God has done for you. So you have no right to be anything but humble. Secondly, hope for the worst of sinners. God doesn't choose you based on your merit or your works. That means that even the foulest of human beings in our eyes, shall I mention the Islamic State militants, has a hope in God's sovereign saving power. Because he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. How wonderful that everyone can have hope because of Christ's blood and because Christ's blood was enough. Thirdly, help for the cause of missions. God chooses whom he will. Nothing can get in the way of that. Whether we're talking about someone in the depths of the rainforest who's never even heard the name of Jesus before or our friend who seems so hard-hearted and opposed to the idea of religion and an all-powerful God. There is hope for mission because God can choose anyone. Anyone he wants. Nothing can stand in his way. And fourth and finally, if we truly... It's homage for the name of God. Because if we truly knew and understood this name of God, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, then how we would change the way in which we worshipped him. What reverence we would hold him in. What fear we would have of him. What adulation and joy we would bestow upon him at every opportunity. But God is sovereign. He is Lord. He is the one who saves me. So we shall hold him in reverence, we shall fear him, and we shall give him our adulation and joy. It's not an option, it's our Christian duty. And it's the underpinning of all that we do as Christians. To borrow a phrase from John to finish, we love because he first loved us. Amen.